You're listening to You Play A What, a podcast by a musician for musicians. My name is Vincent and I play the euphonium. Join me as I sit down with successful musicians to talk about their specialization, inspirations, and career developments. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to episode 25 of You Play A What? So, Black Friday is nearing, so I hope all of you have queued up all your wish lists with the things that you wanted to get during this long-awaited shopping spectacle. Uh, This week, my guest is spending Thanksgiving in US in person, and I feel like I've been through Thanksgiving because of all the American sitcoms I've watched. But I reckon that the pandemic has affected the festivities that we would normally associate with the final few months of the year. I can't imagine not going to Christmas markets or not being able to gather with friends during this period of time. And actually, my barber told me that he... Yes, I do have a barber. (laughs) He told me that he's not going to be spending Christmas with his family for the first time in 31 years. So that's pretty sad and I guess he just needs to stay sober until his virtual dinner with his family. <laughs> so uh, now, on to this episode with Jia Yi. She is currently living in Baltimore and studying at the Peabody Conservatory. Part of being in music school, we hope to find our own artistic voice and create art that has a deeper meaning to us. So on this episode, we spoke about some of her own compositional process, her opinions on appealing to the mass audience, and our shared love for coffee. Thank you once again for tuning in to You Play A What. Do share this with your friend if you like the content that you've heard. Enough from me now. Please enjoy this episode of You Play A What with Jia Yi. My guest today is currently chasing her American dream, although looking at the current state of things, one could argue that it is turning into something different. She's also made the decision to not pursue a career as a trumpeter, for better or for worse, I'll let you decide. Welcome to the show, Jia Yi. How are you doing today? Thank you for inviting me. I'm, I'm doing well. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. Thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. Um, yeah, I'm so I'm really looking forward to getting to know you a little bit better. You know, so far our correspondence has been with the quartet, so it'll be a nice chance for me to get to know you a little bit better and your thought process as a musician and some of the things that are going on in your life at the moment. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so you know, uh, we are winding down towards the end of the year, 
and I believe we are near a particular major holiday in the US called Thanksgiving. I've never lived in the US extensively anyway. Uh, what usually happens during Thanksgiving for international students? I mean, usually for, because for all the locals, they will usually head back home. And so pre-COVID times, I mean, if not for the pandemic, usually a few of us will just gather together and have a sort of gathering. We'll have like a potluck to sort of imitate whatever the, because Thanksgiving is usually like Chinese New Year for Americans. So Mm. it's, it's where like they have their family gatherings and they will have like potluck and stuff. So that's what usually we'll do. But of course now with the pandemic, we are not supposed to hang out in groups. So yeah, I'm probably just staying at home. And then, But there's also Black Friday, so I'll probably be doing quite a lot of shopping, online shopping. Uh, yes, a lot of clicking on Amazon, right? <laughs> yeah, Amazon Prime. Yeah. That's like the dream, right? Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I suppose like, you know, when I was living in the UK, something that's very mm. similar is Christmas, where all the local students will head back home and uh, spend some time with the family and things like that. So uh, it's a little bit different in the US. Is like, how do they differentiate like Thanksgiving and Christmas? Is Christmas not so big of a deal over there? Uh, I mean, I feel like Thanksgiving is like more of a family gathering, but then Christmas is where they will prepare gifts. So actually they take gift giving like quite seriously in the US. So they will mm. actually prepare, they will have like, or uh, huge like shopping list in advance and then they'll make sure they will have like, all their gifts prepared before that. But I mean, I don't know because coming from a f- family background where we don't really celebrate Christmas, mm. it's usually for us like, or oh, just a usual kind of gathering. So yeah, it's definitely a bit different when I talk to Americans and they will be like, oh, okay, have you prepared your gifts or where are you going to get your gifts from? You know, they're actually quite serious about it. So, but I've never spent... I've never spent Christmas in the US before, so this will be my first Christmas here. Ah, I see. Okay. So, uh, what did you do last year? Did you come back to Singapore? Yeah, I came back to Singapore for a winter break. I see. So, uh, is it something that you do usually? So, when whenever there's like an extended holiday, you will come back? Or is it you came back because of work? Mm, yeah, I mean, usually I try to... I mean, this is also only my second year here. So, mm. I try to come back every holiday as far as possible, but... Obviously, this time, you know, I don't want to come back and have to quarantine for like half the time that I'm here. So I'm just going to mm. stay here. Yeah. And I think it's quite nice to escape the the harsh winters of the Western world, right? <laughs> and then you can just come <laughs> yeah, back to of Singapore. Course. Yeah, when it's a little bit warmer. Yeah, although, although now it's actually getting warmer and warmer, I guess, because of global warming. Like it started because usually it will snow around like January or February, but it kind of stopped snowing here. So, oh, yeah. Okay. Right. So it, it has it been like a quite a warm winter as compared to last year? Yeah, definitely. And I think for like, just the weather has been just like more and more erratic. And I think that's like across the world. Yeah. Um, you know, you mentioned something about this whole uh, COVID situation. And of course, uh, over in the US, it's kind of still climbing a little bit. Uh, how has oh, that? Oh, of course. Yeah, <laughs> and how has that affected the general uh, festivity mood? You know, uh, there's like there's what um, that people usually associate with like the end of the year. 
Mm, for sure, like there's no. I mean, I've I find myself staying at home more often, and I don't have like the same kind of gatherings with my friend. There's no more like parties to go to. We mm. don't because usually we we'll hang out. Um, you know, every week, once every week after, like maybe like one of my classes, we'll go to the bars and hang out. But yeah, there's nothing of it right now. So everything is pretty quiet as well. Like I don't see as much like noise on the street and stuff. So yeah, I mean, hopefully, I mean, that's in a way, that's a good thing. This means that people are taking things seriously and hopefully, you know, you'll come off like the situation a little bit better in the in the months to come. Yeah, hopefully. Mm. Yeah, so, uh, you know, when I first uh, moved overseas, uh, my first year was extremely boring. Like, by choice, you know, not that the, the city had nothing to offer, but I didn't really explore much of Manchester. I didn't really go anywhere. I stayed in my my room for most parts. And if you were to come visit me in my first year, I would have like only brought you to two interesting places that I know. And one of it is probably the music college. So uh, <laughs> currently, do you live in the university uh, accommodation? Uh, no. So I, I rent an apartment, um, but it's close to school. So it's about five minutes walk. And yeah, I mean, I feel like my life is a bit different from yours because uh, so this is actually not my first time um, at Peabody. I actually did an exchange semester when I was in my third year of undergraduate. Mm. So this is actually my second time in the school. Right. So obviously when I did my exchange, I traveled so much because I thought, oh, that was like the only time that I'll be here. And so I probably like traveled to at least like five different cities. So every break I would like go to another city to visit mm. my friend or sometimes I'll take like weekend trips to New York which is oh it's crazy but you know like yeah, yeah. um so yeah I definitely like travel a lot more then but then um so last year when I when I moved here I didn't travel so much but I mean I still hung around more like in the city mm. and um I like to go to DC because it's safer and right. it has a lot of museums which I, I really enjoy so I like to just uh, oh, and there's also like Chinatown, which has good Chinese food because mm. there's no like good Chinese food around in Baltimore. Right. Yeah. Right. So, but now obviously this year I've traveled. I I mean I've stopped traveling obviously, and I'm just at home most of the time. So mm. yeah, never really go out. So now, if of course at at this current situation, it's a little bit tricky. But if you had a friend that's visiting you, what are the three places that you bring them in Baltimore? say like there's no restrictions mm. or anything definitely so one of the i guess one of the like tourist spots in baltimore is called the inner harbor so it's downtown it's, it's a um because we are kind of near the sea i think i mean yeah we're on the east coast right so <laughs> right. there's a <laughs> yeah so there's a there's a harbor that's pretty nice and it has like i mean it's, it's right downtown and has all like a lot of like shops and food area mm. so that's one place um and then i'll probably also bring them to see um the main like john hopkins campus which is up north so right. there's also quite i mean john hopkins is a pretty old school so the the campus itself is actually quite nice it's like those kind of you know old school college buildings that you always see mm. i don't know but it's super nice and there's also like quite a few um streets around that has like pretty nice like cafes and restaurants mm. and uh i don't know i guess the third place would be this 
would be like downtown, maybe like further further south from the harbour. So there's there's a place called Fells Point, which yeah, has pretty good food and yeah, it's it's also kind of like um because what what they have here is not like they don't have shopping malls like in Singapore. They usually mm. I think there's one or two malls, but this is like nothing compared to Singapore. So what they usually have is like streets of like yeah. food. So there's like it's probably like one or two floors and they have like different cafes, restaurants and shops. So this this is quite a nice place to hang around. Mm, yeah, when the country is big, it's different. It's all like high streets and stuff like that. Isn't it? The shops yeah, are all, all by the road. Yeah, and not stacked into a, a, a building. Yeah, so, um, you know, having lived in Baltimore for a while now, now, uh, usually this is something that I speak to um, people who have lived abroad a little bit. That is like, how is the general safety like in Baltimore? And how has has living in the, the US made you like feel like, oh, you know, actually in Singapore, we are, we are so fortunate that we can just leave home any point of the night and we'll kind of be okay. Oh, of course, definitely. So the crime rate here is, I mean, it's not the best. And yeah, I mean, in general, like Baltimore is known for like being one of the more dangerous cities to live in. Mm. Yeah, just because there's a lot of, I guess, homeless people on the streets. And yeah, they, the police here obviously don't really control much. So right. I try not to go out at night. I mm. If like I need to go run errands, I try to do everything in the day. And um, yeah, in Baltimore, there are a few streets that are more sketchy than others. So mm. definitely I'll try to avoid that. And yeah, or if not, if I really have to go somewhere, then I'll go with a friend at least. And obviously, mm. it's so different compared to Singapore because Singapore, I can just come back like, oh, you know, 3am in the middle of the night and like nothing is not, I mean, everything will be fine. And even yeah. if I'm a girl, you know, mm. yeah. So obviously it's been, uh, it has made me like take for granted, I guess, what I can mm. do in Singapore. Yeah. And when, when you first moved over, was it like, uh, did you have to be very aware of it or was it something that like people told you, oh, actually you shouldn't be like heading out at this time? Because sometimes we might feel like, oh, you know, it's like 9 p.m. now. I'm, I just finished my work. I have some time. Like, why don't I like go out with some friends? Would like, did anybody tell you that, oh, you know, it's about this time of the, the night. It's best that we don't head out just so that we, you know, don't get into any sort of trouble. Yeah, I mean, because when I when I first came here, it was during my exchange. So I came with a, another friend and also at that point in time, there were a lot of Singaporeans studying at Peabody. So there was a huge mm. community. So when I came here, they kind of gave me like a tour around. So they would be like, okay, these two streets are safe. Just make sure you stay on them at all times. Avoid like these places, these places and don't go out at night. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah, and yeah. we are quite lucky to have like this... So it's, we have this like shuttle service from the school. So it's mm. it's like it's like Uber or like you know Grab, but in the form of like a van. So you you have this number that you call. I think now they upgraded it to like an app that you can like you know it's basically the same as Grab in Singapore. So you okay. key in like your location and the place you want to go. Usually it's like okay when you're outside at mm. night, like at ten p.m. you're at this restaurant and you want to go back home or like mm. you want to go back to school then you mm. can always just key in and they will like send someone to fetch you back. And so it works like, I think, within a mile radius of the school. So it's very helpful because it reaches to like even like the downtown area. So 
in a way, it's kind of like a safety measure that the school put in to like ensure that the students are safe because they understand that you know the some areas here are not like particularly safe, especially at night. I see. Yeah, that's nice. And is this like uh, do you, do you pay for this service as well when you or is it like kind of a free service for the students? So it's a yeah, it's a free service for students. So we have to like log in with our ID and stuff. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's nice. That's really nice. Yeah, free bus from like Orchard back to NUS. That'd be nice. Uh, yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, at least we feel, at least we feel safe, you know. Like, mm-hmm. I feel that like, okay, if I know that there's this service, I can still like go out. And so, so I don't have to, you know, spend money like actually like Ubering everywhere. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, uh, yeah, moving on, it's always nice to, to find a kindred soul that enjoys a higher quality product as you do. Uh, because it makes me feel less of a snob, I guess. <laughs> but, so uh, let's talk about coffee, you know. So I understand that you enjoy a good cup of coffee as uh, much as I do, probably. Uh, so maybe we can spend the next 50 minutes or so chatting about this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, right. But, uh, but we're not going to do that. But like, you know, for me, before I left for the UK, I used to hate black coffee. You know, I really? when I was yeah when I was living in Singapore, I hated black coffee because uh, for me it tasted burnt, it was bitter, it was not very enjoyable, and I mean I'm not a fan of the the caffeine kick anyway. So, uh, coffee beverages that I drink uh, are all sort of like uh, milk based or like you know kopi ping in in a coffee shop that's kind of sweetened, uh, and I also never felt that there was a point of having a hot beverage when I was living in Singapore before I went to the UK because why would you want to drink something hot here because it's already so bloody warm uh, but things has uh, <laughs> definitely taken a turn and it might be my age so uh, I want to ask you like at which point in your life did you start enjoying coffee and at which point did you get into like specialty and single origin coffee yeah so I I first started drinking coffee probably like you know secondary school and you know what secondary school kids drink which is Starbucks, right? So yeah. obviously that's how that's how I started. So you know we always start with like the frappuccino or like the mocha, you know all those sweet drinks. Yeah. So that's that's how I started. I mean I enjoyed that a lot at my mm. at that time and yeah. So there was like a Starbucks near my secondary school and so we always like go there after that. But I think yeah, I only started going into like more specialty coffee like recently especially like when i moved here and you know i had to make my own coffee so previously i would usually just buy like, i mean because in singapore it's pretty convenient to just you know get even like cafe or like hawker center kind of thing so mm. i used to drink i think similar to you i used to drink coffee that's like very sweet and with milk and stuff but yeah yeah i think probably it's the age i think <laughs> as you grow older you try you i mean you tend to like appreciate you know the 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 taste of coffee. It's, it's yeah. really a quiet taste, I think. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so definitely when I came here, um, I I found like buying coffee from like cafe outside is, is just really too expensive because mm. one cup of coffee here can go up to like, you know, five, six dollars a cup. And right. if I buy like, a, if I get a coffee every day of the week, that's like, you know, 20, 30 dollars. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, so definitely it's not worth it. And, for me, I drink coffee mostly also because of like caffeine. Mm. Although I think uh, it has no effect on me anymore. But <laughs> slightly worrying, yeah. but it's okay, <laughs> you know. 
I mean, I'm a composer, you know. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, you yeah, can work so late I started into the buying. Night, oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm totally a night owl. Right. right. Yeah. So obviously, the the caffeine helps me like get up, you know, early in the class, stay awake for my morning classes. Yeah, so I started buying coffee and um, I found like the most convenient way to brew was just to, to make cold brew because I can just make a big batch and then store it in the fridge for like, the whole mm. week. So the next few mornings, you know, if I'm like rushing for school, I can just grab one, pour into my tumbler and just leave, you know. Yeah. Mm. Right. So, you know, uh, for me, when I first t- uh, tasted like single origin, like filter coffee, it kind of blew my mind because it's like the flavors that you get from the coffee is just like, well, this is like not even anything close to what I will associate with coffee that I know, you know, which is the the copios, the, the very dark roast and, and all that kind of stuff. So uh, did it have the same kind of impact on you as well when you like first tasted single origin coffee or yeah in what ways was it better for you uh i don't know i feel like it's not so much of a change i guess because like mm. when i first started like brewing my own coffee i was still like at milk and stuff but it's, it's only like recently like this year that i was like okay maybe i should stop like adding milk and you know start appreciating the taste of coffee and then because i also changed like uh so usually i used to buy from this cafe but then now since i'm always at home Mm. Uh, I ordered this I started like this so I got this um subscription like program where like you sign up and they like send you like a different coffee every month so it's, mm. it's quite it's quite cool like you fill in like the survey and then you'll be like they'll ask you like oh what kind of taste like flavors do you like generally and then mm. so they'll send you like a, a like a bag of coffee that's like catered to the taste and I found that, like, actually the coffees they send are, like, so much better. So I start mm. to, like, appreciate tasting more. And, you know, um, by, like, drinking it black now, I feel like can I can appreciate the flavors more than, like, you know, just adding it with milk. Yeah, for sure. I think it's also a very interesting point that you brought up. You know, I, I wonder that being able to enjoy black coffee now, is it because we can relate to bitterness of our lives a little bit more? <laughs> you know, as, as we yeah, get a oh, little man. bit older <laughs> and we've go <laughs> that we we've seen a little bit more things and yeah. So yeah, I mean Yeah, I don't know. I mean I feel like it's I feel like it's the same as like alcohol, I guess. It's kind of like a quiet taste. Like when, mm. when you obviously when you start like drinking I don't know, maybe that's for me, but like when you start yeah. drinking like like from you you know, like previously, it's always like, oh, you just want to like get drunk, get, you know, whatever. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I know of people who like, I mean, they, they used to like, you know, just drink beer and all that. I mean, I personally hate beer, but like mm. after that, oh, like you go into like tasting like different, like, I don't know, like they can taste like all the different parts of like whiskey. I, I, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I haven't got different to, like that level yeah. yet. Mm. Yeah. But for, I mean, I don't know, maybe in the future. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Right, so, you know, now let's get into uh, slightly more serious business. Uh, although I mm-hmm. wish we can carry on this uh, conversation about coffee. Uh, so now, why don't you share with us uh, your musical journey and your career developments so far? Yeah, of course. So yeah. um, I started out actually being more of a performer. So um, I started learning piano at around age six. And then after that, I picked up the trumpet um, when I was in high school in um, Nanyang, uh, Nanyang Girls High School so mm. I joined the concert band and then I wanted so I wanted 
to pick an instrument uh, that was like, you know, small. Because at, at that time, I was quite small size. So I was like, okay, it, it was like either the flute or like the clarinet or some, something small. So I mm. decided on the trumpet. And right. um, yeah, so then also at that point, I enrolled in the higher music program in Nanyang Girls. Mm-hmm. And so I started um, kind of learning more about music. And then um, around secondary three or four, we had to, you know, have some like small composition assignments. So that's how I kind of started. Um, mm. it, was us- it was kind of like uh, writing like maybe a 16 bar melody or like a short, like two minute piece. So then after that, I continued on um, to take A-level music when I was in JC. And uh, at that time, I was already like, you know, being more interested in composition. So I took the composition major. So mm. even though I had to perform, I was, you know, getting a chance to compose more and um yeah also around that time I figured that you know I'm not as good as a performer as other people and I also I also like got really bad stage fright so I was like oh maybe I should um continue you know uh my passion of composing so after JC I decided you know oh I really like music and I didn't want to study so much so I applied (laughs) to (laughs) This is right, so, right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's so yeah. ironic because like now I'm still in school, but yeah. yeah, I mean, I don't like studying like math or science, you know, so mm-hmm. I wanted, I really wanted to like focus more on music, which was something that I enjoyed. Right. And I thought um, composition was a really good way. So I applied, I auditioned for Yong Suto Conservatory of Music um, for the composition program. And mm. then so I got in and now I'm doing my master's at Peabody. Right, right. So uh, when you spoke about this uh, higher music program uh, that you enrolled mm-hmm. into uh, when you were in secondary school, would you say that this was kind of like the point and where it all kind of started to prepare you or that got you interested in pursuing music professionally? Yeah, definitely. I mean, through the program, we kind of, uh, because it was a additional thing that we took. So, yeah, I mean, definitely I had like more workload compared to some of my peers. But then I found that, oh, I actually enjoyed doing this more than, you know, my other subjects. And um, during this program, we got to, we got a lot of opportunities to like interact with other like musicians. And I remember like having the chance to like watch a lot of like orchestra concerts during that time. So, which Mm. kind of um, really inspired me to, you know, continue pursuing music. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So, what are the prerequisites for you to enroll into this program? Do you uh, enroll it with your piano playing abilities or was there something else that you had to do? So, if I remember correctly, um, we had to perform, we had to have like at least grade five, I think, in one instrument. And you have to like do a theory test. So at least, you know, you have some like to prove that you have some musical background. So you take it like before sec one. So basically there's a there's a written test, which is like the theory test and then the performance where you kind of perform like I think two contrasting pieces. Mm. So that's the prerequisite. And then once you enrolled in, you have to pick up a second instrument. So that's why I joined like the concert band and and picked up the trumpet. Yeah. I see. Okay. Uh, how much of uh, help has it been that you've had to, or you've had this chance to dabble on the piano before 
you became a composer because I understand that if you are, or at least for me, when I took a, com- a composition module when I was studying, uh, it, it was difficult for me to um, hear chords, you know. Uh, it's easy for me to write like single line for, let's say, like the euphonium or uh, another brass instrument. But when it comes to like, oh, you know, putting harmonies into my, my piece, I find it extremely challenging. Uh, have you seen any or have you had uh, a chance to work with students or have you seen other sort of your peers who don't necessarily have that uh, uh, foundation as a pianist, uh, sort of have uh, difficulties in that element of composition? Mm, I feel that uh, maybe if you are looking at, you know, sort of more traditional sort of composition where it's like harmony-based, definitely... Um, it would be harder for them to write chords and stuff. But I've, I don't know. I feel like um, it's quite a old school way of thinking. And because mm. now I feel like um, with new music, you know, you can... I've seen like good composers who don't necessarily have like piano background, but they, they still like write really well. And right. I think maybe one of the disadvantages is that maybe um, without the piano training, you just don't like write for piano that well. Because I think... Um, we always speak about like, you know, writing idiomatically for the instrument. And I think, mm. um, yeah, that sort of thing, uh, it's always best if you know the instrument well before that. And then so obviously you will know kind of like the the, the tips or like tricks that like, you know, performers can do. So obviously like mm. now, um, yeah, I'm, that's why I'm also like trying to pick up like instruments from other families so mm. I kind of started learning the violin although I, I only had like I think one or two months of lessons but yeah right, it, did, right. it did help me understand like you know how bowing works you know how like the string instrument works and I think it's, it's so much better mm. yeah definitely yeah because I remember sending like the first draft copy of, or not even a draft like part of my work to the lecturer and he was like, well, you can't play that on a piano because like <laughs> the chords was just like way too spread. But for me, you know, I don't see that kind of difficulty. I don't see like how much the hands has to stretch. And then I just kind of wrote too many notes and then the chords were like too spread, which, you know, should be kind of like common knowledge. But because of, you know, <laughs> my neck, lack of uh, idea of how to play the piano, then that becomes a problem, right? Yeah, mm, so I, I Yeah, complete, but I mean, I yeah. think... I think other than that, um, I think score study is very important as well. So mm. even if you don't like, you don't get to learn the instrument. You if you study scores, you study enough scores and see what other composers do and listen to their music. I think that also helps a lot. Mm. Yeah, definitely. So you know, uh, you mentioned something also quite interesting that like, uh, you said that some people who don't necessarily have piano background also like writes very well, uh. Uh, definitely, I think what you're referring to is in the contemporary music sense. So f- for you personally, what, how would you define something that is uh, a, a great piece of work or a good piece of work? Is it based on the, the concept or is it more of a uh, concept of the piece or more of like the technique that's applied by the composer? Well, this is such a difficult question. But I mean, I think because I view concept as like essential or integral to the piece, that's my own personal preference. So obviously I'll be listening out more to that. You know, I'll pay attention to the things that interest me most. Mm. So for me, 
a good piece of work is something that you know has a strong concept and it clearly shows like what the intention of the composer wants to and yeah. also i mean i think it has to be coherent and right. yeah i mean at least it makes sense like you know the whole like development of the piece and even if like the piece is not meant to have development then that's fine also you know as long as the the composer's intentions are clearly exemplified in the work i think that's i think it's a good piece of music mm. and how for you how did you get into this interest of composing and writing music is it because you see it as like a more like a more interesting way of uh, creating something as compared to what you do as a performer? Mm, yeah, I mean, definitely at, at some point, uh, it helps me to like, you know, express some of my ideas through music because I think, yeah, probably that's what I'm best at. So I think also uh, I kind of got into... The interest, like, I mean, I kind of got into composing because um previously I would like used to listen to a lot of other, I mean, music by other composers and like, oh, you know, this kind of thing is interesting. Oh, like I, I want to learn to be able to do that sort of thing. Mm. Yeah. And also like playing, I mean, uh, I didn't get to play a lot of new music previously. Mm. So yeah, but I, I did, like, have a chance to, like, work with, I think, some of, like, the living composers, either through, like, um, playing in orchestra or, like, um, going to festivals. But, I mean, that was also a bit later on in my life. But then, yeah, I was, it's, it's really quite interesting to be able to, like, perform, like, music by live composers compared to, like, you know, someone who is, like, already dead. Mm. Working with live composers like you get to hear their intentions like right away and then you'll be able to you know better express better like interpret and perform their pieces as compared to because you know for like other old composers there's always this i issue of like oh the conventions you know like if you play mm. baroque music you have to play it like that but it's like who yeah. knows you know yeah if a you have a live composer you can always right. yeah you can always talk mm. to them and there's also always these like conventions that like people pass on so like oh your teacher tells you oh it has to be played that way you know mm -hmm. yeah and, yeah yeah and that's not you know the the lines are are kind of blurred in a way isn't it it's all like it, it becomes like interpretation Interpretation then mm -hmm. becomes like it has to be the way and then it becomes performance practice. But yeah, of course, like you said, the the people who are this who are the people that are deciding the performance practice. It's not necessarily the composers mm -hmm. themselves, but it's been passed on and sort of like tweaked uh, by many different yeah. artists, yeah, across the, the hundreds of years of uh, these works. So mm -hmm. for you, when you first started to uh, listen to contemporary works, did it strike a chord with you immediately? Or was it something like you had to take a little bit of time to get used to it? Because I believe that when you started writing, you didn't start out writing like contemporary stuff or did you? Mm, so um, I guess my first few like compositions when I was in like JC, I was at that time I was very interested in because um, our A-level music was on romantic symphonies, right? So I, at that point, I was like, oh, super into, I guess, like Mahler and like Brahms mm. and, you know, those kind of composers. And so mm. I was like already experimenting with kind of um, trying to create, like trying to make my music more unique. I mean, 
originality is such a is such a big topic that like you know we can go into another time but mm. i was trying to like okay make my how how do i make my music like sound a bit more like special and outstanding so i was already right. trying to find ways to kind of like innovate and like get out of the usual like strict way of like conventional way of writing so mm. I, but then obviously i didn't get like that far because i wasn't really exposed to all this kind of new music so uh, the first few times I got to listen uh, to like contemporary music was actually uh, after I got into YST. And mm. so the first few pieces I listened to, I thought, wow, this is such like a refreshing piece of music. So I think I stuck with this idea, this like refreshing idea kind of stuck with me uh, throughout, even until now. So I always like, uh, it's always nice to be able to hear like uh, new ways of like, uh, expression and mm. so yeah I think I think that uh, definitely uh, was a big part of uh, how I started writing and then slowly um, through the help of my teacher I got to slowly explore more like techniques that um, contemporary music composers use and yeah mm. right so now let's go uh, let's talk about the your own compositional style Right, mm -hmm. and of course, we we speak now in twenty twenty, and this is a particular style. Uh, you are still very young in your career. This doesn't mean that it's it's gonna stay the same. It probably is not gonna stay the same for say like the next twenty thirty years, right? But uh, for mm -hmm. now, at least you know, uh, I found a quote from you saying that uh, your music is often constructed using a single gesture that is then developed and transformed throughout the piece. So. Uh, could, could you just give us a little bit more information or definition of uh, the term gesture that you're using here? Mm -hmm. So obviously, um, when I started out, it was kind of more influenced by the you know romantic late romantic composers. So it has it like the gesture was more to do with like musical motif, like specific like intervals, pitch content, like you know melodies. But then now, um. I've expanded it to include also like um general like motion, so whether it's ascending, descending, wave like or sort of like um color, so whether it's like dark or bright, and even um like movements uh such as like um so this recent piece that I've been working on working on um the concept is on uh you know like the magnetic forces so like attraction and repulsion so it's, it has nothing to do with like music but it's this kind of um there's still a movement to it so mm. when obviously attracting is like something like coming together so i i like to work with more like abstract gestures nowadays because i think it gives definitely more like possibilities that i can work with compared to just like you know pitch content mm, i see so it's a little bit like Taking, uh, using your writing to portray a certain kind of kinetic energy nowadays. Yeah. Would you say that? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, that, you know, how, how would you perceive things like repulsion and attraction, uh, falling or rising and things like that? And using your writing style and your music to, to convey such uh, gestures and motions. Yeah, and definitely um, recently I'm also been more interested in kind of expanding the this sort of gestures like from like only just like musically to also include like visually so i'll get like you know i'll kind of add in choreography to the piece itself mm, right so uh i mean uh, you know 
is it fair for me to say that you're a composer that is um that really try to stretch out certain uh motifs and ideas to its fullest? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So you take a, a, a the germ of an idea and you kind of like expand it to to something that's larger. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, you know, in, in terms of that, right? Uh, I, I believe one of the, the ways that you can add uh, interest and you know manipulate this one particular idea is to explore different sort of sound colors, textures, or like instrument combination if you're writing for an ensemble. Uh, mm-hmm. do you regard this process as like absolutely like essential and do you enjoy this stage of the composition where you are thinking about sound colors if you're thinking about like blends and like different sort of um, uh, possibilities for the instruments that you're writing for yeah of course i think i think that's a huge part of my process and uh really i try to um i really like to focus on uh, the different colors and combinations of instruments in my in my pieces so uh definitely when you know i'm planning a piece during the planning process i will always uh sketch out kind of like different combinations of um, instruments or like sounds so maybe i have like um you know maybe a, a low sound in like uh, a, a bass instrument uh, paired with maybe like uh, I don't know rumbling sound or something like that mm. yeah and uh, I also used to have this um, I would draw these tables where I compare like different basically the the, tr- the different possibilities of a particular sound whether it's like from dark to bright so I'll, I'll have this um, gradations of sound color so maybe mm. I'll start with like uh, okay it's a dark sound or uh, maybe not so dark and then medium and then bright and like super like super bright and then I would right. try to like um kind of list down like what combinations of uh, instruments or basically like at what register or what sort of techniques and the co- like what kind of combinations of it would give this sort of sound so I will plan all mm. this out um before I start writing and then uh throughout the piece then I would utilize it whenever I need it Right, right. So, you know, uh, as I, I believe because you've been doing so much work, right, and you document all these uh, combinations and different type of usages uh, mm-hmm. down that you have built up, uh, you, you can really predict certain things nowadays that, oh, okay, now I have some knowledge of this instrument, instrument A and instrument B. So I know like if I put uh, A and C, I would like roughly get this sort of sound. Uh, mm-hmm. so in, in recent times has this uh, has there been any moments that like that still kind of surprise you like a particular combination that you thought mm, I'm not really sure about this but when you put them together or we hear them live it actually turned out to be you know uh, much more interesting than you expected oh of course definitely I feel like I'm still there's still so much that I don't know and I'm always like learning all the time so this is so why I really enjoy like um like, you know, the live, live rehearsal process being in the same room as, like, other performers. And, like, you know, because usually they will also, um, they will obviously have a clearer idea of, like, what their instrument can do. So sometimes if I don't get the sound I want, I can always, like, describe it to them and mm. they will usually know what to do. And obviously, um, uh, I've been 
always like you know surprised by like moments in my piece where it's and it's usually the things where I don't think about so much that um, right. during the live performance oh that actually sounds great or that actually sounds fantastic and it's a lot mm. of um listening as well so like not only just like my own um rehearsals of my pieces but also sitting into like rehearsals of like other composers because sometimes you pay attention to you know a particular sound that maybe they don't find it that interesting but um sometimes i like oh okay i can i can you know keep that and use it like you know next time yeah mm. so definitely i've like um i've also like um uh, taken you know moments in like this particular piece that like um, wasn't a big part of my piece but then oh i found it really interesting and then i used that to develop like a future piece yeah yeah of course mm. So now, uh, also in your uh, profile, uh, mm-hmm. I, I read that your when you write music, sometimes you also explore this idea of uh, indeterminacy. So, mm-hmm. uh, which which means that part of the the music is left to the performer's discretion, and therefore each performance would be different and unique in mm-hmm. in a sense. So in this uh, recent uh, collaboration with uh, Cole and yourself, we've seen uh, sort of a, a quite a wide uh, spectrum of your prescriptive and uh, non-prescriptive writing. So of course, like I, I, when I say non-prescriptive, it's not like you don't give us some sort of bounds and means. You still do, but then we are like you give us a, a, a row of notes that we can pick from Mm. and we can improvise based on that, right? So uh, how do you uh, ensure that your compositions retain what you have imagined now that you have given so much liberty to the uh, performance? Mm -hmm. I think um, it really depends on each piece and for usually all the pieces that I decide to use in determinacy, there are are, like parameters that I control strictly, which one, like which which one I want to keep for myself mm. and also which one that I allow the performers to have more freedom in. Yeah, so definitely I think it uh, varies per piece and for each of the pieces that I decide to use in determinacy, there's always um, different parameters that I control. So which ones that uh, I want to retain control of and which one that um, I leave it up to the performers. So there are some pieces where I notate down you know each like um motivic cell and then i leave it up to the performers to decide the order or in some cases i write down like all the notes but um i kind of uh each basically each entrance of the musicians are different so this will occur in maybe like a large ensemble piece where you know i have like each like this different like um kind of line that they play but then they're mm. all like occurring at a different time. So then you get this like um you get this kind of texture that is kind of messy, but then because I also don't want to I also feel that it's not necessary for me to like notate it strictly. So mm. uh with every with every instance of indeterminacy that I use, there's always like a good reason behind it. Right. Yeah. Right. So it's like organized chaos in a way. Somewhat. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah, right. So, um, what what is it about um, indeterminacy that appeals to you in your music? Like, the, I mean, mm. the the concept of it. Like, what 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 attracts you to want to experiment with this? Because I mean, it's 
I, I guess to a certain extent, so I, I don't know whether uh, this is true for you or not, but wouldn't you like to have a little bit more uh, a clearer instruction for the performers rather than to have this sort of like um, uh, organized chaos as we just mentioned? I think because um I'm very interested in like um creating different textures for my music, so this is one of the ways where I can create like a messy texture without it being you know too over notated and complicated for the performers. Because I always like to find the most efficient way to do stuff. So mm. even so, f- for example, if um I want like maybe this kind of texture where it's like all over the place or. And then so I find it easier and I still get the, the same effect if I ask the musicians to, you know, just simply not play together rather than, mm. you know, writing out all the complex, like, rhythms. And, you know, I will still achieve the same effect. But then now if I give the the kind of, if I give the control to the performers, then they're also more compelled to listen. And so mm. I think, I think it, it helps, like, both sides. Right, and right. um yeah, I think uh control wise, uh as long as I notate it like clearly and I'm very sure of what I wanna do and what what is the effect that I'm after, I think I think I have no issue of like leaving some parts out for the performers to decide. Mm. Right. So uh, when you first experimented with this, say if you go back to the first piece of music that you had this sort of uh, element inside the uh, the composition, mm-hmm. uh, has there been any sort of like uh, uh, experiment g- gone wrong kind of things that like you, you wrote something and then you went to listen to say a live version of it or a rehearsal and then it turns out to be something like completely not what you've imagined? Yeah, I mean, definitely uh, one of the first few pieces that I wrote, um, I think I kind of gave them too little, like, instruction. So I mm. would, like, have, basically, I everything was, like, really vague and then there were, like, many different loopholes that the performers found. So maybe I said, like, okay, uh, I can't remember what exactly I did, but mm. um, I just know that, oh, ev- like, all the instructions were very vague and then they could, so they could be interpreted in, like, a many many different ways. So then mm-hmm. um, the performers ended up, like, not really understanding what I wanted. And so I had right. to, you know, explain it to them. And then so I think uh, from there, I mean, it's, it's also been a process of, like, trial and error, different pieces. I've always had to, you know, consult with performers and, like, mm. after that, tweak it back in my score. So, um, yeah, I think... I think also, like, I've also learned a lot by looking at, like, similar scores from, like, other composers and, Mm. you know, just getting, I guess, getting feedback from performers as well. Right, right. And has there been any sort of, like, has there been any musicians that you worked with where you wrote something that is sort of more, like, improvisational or something that gives them a little bit more liberty to uh, do whatever they want? but they try to uh, coax uh, somewhat of a more uh, standardized or um, I would say a written version out from you that they keep asking, yeah. oh, but what, what, what do you intend here? Oh, would you like, like, would you like me to go from, say, like, uh, we start from quavers and then we move on to like a smaller rhythmic denomination or would you like, you know, do that? Does this happen often for you? Oh, I mean, it, it, dif- 
it depends actually because um I think recently now a lot of my pieces I've I've always like written for specific like performers in mind. So mm. I kind of already know what they're they are used to or what they are not and then obviously I kind of modify this sort of indeterminacy, like the degree of it uh, differently. Right. But uh, okay. definitely when I when I worked with um, uh, SMYO like two years ago, yeah, I did mm. include some of the, some of this indeterminacy in my piece. And yeah, I can tell some of the younger performers um, who are not so familiar with playing new music, they did have a harder time, like, you know, trying to get used to this sort of new way of performing and listening mm. to music. Mm. Yeah, so it's interesting that you brought up this point because uh, we also can kind of question, right, whether is it because of the, the way we are being being taught in school that we are, we feel a little bit crippled when we need to do something that is like, yeah, just do whatever you want. They'll be like, um, but what do you mean? But by whatever I want, right? They, they want some kind yeah, of, of instruction. Course. Yeah, they want something that they can uh, uh, follow so that they know that they are doing the right thing and not feel mm-hmm. so kind of like strange about it. Yeah. Yeah, but oh. I mean, I'm also not, I also don't, I guess, give performers like too much freedom. Like I still mm. uh, mark, mark out clearly, like, you know, what sort of like parameters that they are allowed to, um, you know, uh, have their own freedom and what should be more strictly followed. Yeah. Mm. So I think it's always a balance of both. Yeah, Definitely. This question is, uh, I'm interested to hear from you, your opinions, because as artists, you know, we always hope that um, people would engage with our work. Maybe they listen to it, maybe they talk to you about it and and things like that. Um, What are your thoughts about you as an artist and your work and the idea of having like mass audience appeal? Is this something that you're going for? Or who would like to go into? Um, actually, not necessarily because um, I realized that no matter what kind of music you write, there will always be people who like enjoy it, and there will always be people who hate it. Mm. So over the years, I figured that you know I should just write whatever that I like best, and because there's always there's always like different audiences for different music. I mean, that's also why we have this like huge diversity of music too because there's all like everyone has their own preference right mm. so i think for me um it's more important to write what feels good for myself and what i like to write and uh what i kind of want to express rather than trying to conform to like the standards that like society gives yeah so like at any point so far in your uh life as an artist and a musician have you questioned this uh the your music and whether you wanted to oh maybe I should write something that you know as that is more generally accepted you know i I say that in a sense not that your music doesn't have that quality but like you know something that is sort of more traditional or tonal hmm yeah I mean I think when I was younger definitely when I first like you know started out there's always the issue of like oh whether I should write something that everyone likes I mean there's 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 been like so many people like telling me different things Mm. I did obviously think about oh maybe I should you know just write something that everyone likes you know just write like tonal music but then Mm. 
that that wouldn't be something that I really enjoy. So then, mm. uh, yeah, it's, it, it, I think it all boils down to like what you really want to like express because there's always, I mean, tonal music, there's always like so many other people who can do it and there's, but there's also like audiences for like whatever that you write, I think. Mm. So yeah. yeah, I feel like it's, it's still more important for me to write what I want and then after that, I can worry about the audience later. Mm. Yeah, and I think yeah, you you also brought some really good points. Uh, before saying thing, uh, things like, uh, no matter what work you put out there, there are gonna be people who love it, and there are gonna be people who hate it, and that that's really, uh, the the problem comes when uh musicians and artists we start to find that middle ground, where mm. yeah, we try to make our work as neutral and as watered down as possible. And then at the end, nobody really likes it because, yeah, you know, it doesn't appeal to any particular uh, type of audience. And mm-hmm. I think with what you said before as well, the how what you deem as uh, a good piece of work or a good composition comes from a lot of the concept and the efficiency and efficacy of the composition to uh, portray out these uh, concepts. So I think definitely, you know, in terms of um, the music that you write, it's going to be something that is more kind of conceptual and not just like nice melodies, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. In, in terms of now, like, uh, writing music that is, um, you know, either people love or hate, when criticisms uh, come your way, right? Say, for example, like, you have friends that listen to a new piece of work and they perhaps are not, trained musicians or even if they are and then they'd be like oh why are you like writing music like that why don't you write something that is more traditional or quote-unquote uh pleasant uh, how do you deal with like comments like that or have you ever received comments like that before from anyone i mean of course like from i guess mostly from people who i guess are not so much like exposed to the different kind of like contemporary music so i mm. think most of the time um I mean, this is more like personal thing, but I I feel that um, there's always, uh, I mean, there's always enough like tonal music that's around that I don't have to, I mean, that is okay if I, you know, don't write more tonal music. It's it's not like that's not enough. Right, yeah. You know? Yeah, Yeah, Mm. so I feel like I should be contributing to something that I'm truly interested in rather than, you know, what everyone wants. Because, mm. like I said, I'll, like at the end of the day, uh, when I reflect back, you know, on like the kind of music that I write, I I, I want to write something that I, you know, I feel that, oh, I've truly like achieved, you know, whatever intention that I wanted. So if for like a particular piece that I need to, you know, um, I guess appeal to other people, then, you know, I will kind of tweak it a bit. Mm. Yeah, but definitely with, I think with all the comments, I'll just encourage them to, I guess, listen to more contemporary music. Just get themselves more exposed. And maybe they will ultimately find like something that they like just because, you know, they haven't listened to it before. Yeah. Yeah. So I I also like recently I I came across this thing that is about how we deal with criticisms. Um, And uh, interesting for you to, to, uh, interesting to hear your opinions of it, of course. But I, I just want to mm-hmm. share this with you, right? So what I heard is like, there's this author 
And uh, so he has this, his book on, uh, say, like a- Amazon, right? So you can download it on a Kindle and stuff like that. And of course, there are five-star reviews. There are also one-star reviews. And what uh, he mentioned was that this one-star reviews, most of the time, do not really make them a better writer. Mm-hmm. And I find that to be an interesting kind of concept. So uh, this is this applies for say like restaurants as well, right? That uh, you know, if a restaurant gets a one star review and you read it and it says that oh, um, for example, the food is not good, and the service staff is rude. Okay, so maybe that warrants a one star. But many times, one star review are given. Uh, they refuse to take my reservation because they are full, mm-hmm. or the queue is too long that I turn up and then they, they asked me, they told me that there was no table. So in a way that they give a, a, a negative review or criticism is based on something that is irrelevant, yeah. right? Because it's got nothing to do with the quality of the, the food mm-hmm. or the restaurant. It is something to do with your personal experience and that, yeah, of course they're not going to give you a, a spot or, you know, because there's no, no more room in the restaurant. So I guess in terms of music, it's the same thing. I guess when people come up to you and tell you that, you know, could you just like write something that is like more uh, melodic or more pleasant? That is like, but mm-hmm. you're not getting the idea of what I'm trying to tell you. Because if I, I'm sure if they engage with you in a conversation that's uh, revolving around the, the concept of the music and the, the piece and how like, oh, how you, how they might have thought that uh, this was interesting and this like, you know, I didn't quite understand like how this related to like, say, uh, a particular gesture or a particular concept that you're trying to put across. Then I think this would like engage you in a much more um, uh, intellectual way and it could actually make your writing better. And if, but if it's just things like, but you know, if they, if they give you feedback that's not relevant to your music, I, yeah. Do you find that it's hard to, to cope with that? Uh, but of course, then you you also mentioned that you just asked them to perhaps listen to a little bit more contemporary music, right? Yeah, I mean, actually, you the so you brought up a very good point about the the you know the the review about the restaurant and like you know maybe it's just like a particular bad experience, and I think um it's quite relevant also because uh usually I mean a lot of the criticisms are usually based on you know like that particular piece that they've heard, so maybe. Maybe that that piece of music or like that short excerpt of whatever they heard just doesn't resonate with them, and they maybe like you know haven't really like listened to like other things, other pieces, you know, or like the other output of the the composer. So I think, um, it also depends on like what I mean. In a way, it's like maybe they are just limited, uh, at mm. that point in time to what they have experienced, and so like you know that that particular experience they really didn't enjoy. So I don't know. It it might just be that um that at at that point they are just you know not I guess not exposed enough or they just happen to have like a bad experience with that that piece. Mm. Yeah. Or or a particular like genre of music, right? And then they sound kind of like that's kind of just ruins it for them for for the, for the rest of their lives until they are like able to open up their mind again and yeah give yeah. it a, a another try, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, now for you, um, what lies ahead for you in the near and distant future? 
and you know if there are certain kind of projects or things that you are, are very passionate about are there are there anything that you would wish that you can pursue in the future mm. yeah so definitely uh, i would like to you know continue composing uh and like ex- exploring different things just writing um and yeah i'm also uh i want to I'm also interested in you know collaborating with other disciplines, so maybe collaborating with like visual artists, dancers, kind of thing. But that yeah, that will be you know in the future. And apart from composition, I'm also very interested in education. So mm. uh, I hope to be able to you know learn more about teaching, and eventually, like I feel like I really want to um be a professor and teach music and just educate like you know the next generation because i feel like Mm. um music is not just about i mean yeah learning composition you know creating but it's also it's also about like um in a way nurturing you know the next generation making them more like um wholesome in a way i guess right Yeah. yeah just just educate them more and give them more like exposure i would say to mm. music Mm-hmm. yeah yeah so uh any uh, thoughts about where you're gonna be doing this job somewhere abroad back here in singapore uh where where does your your heart lies mm, so currently uh because i'm finishing up my master's right in the state so i hope to continue studying and pursue like a doctoral degree uh mm. probably in this probably in the states and then uh after that i guess it depends, but uh, I still would like to come back to Singapore to teach. Yeah, because mm. that's ultimately still, you know, where I where I came from, where I grew up with, and where I'm most yeah. comfortable. Mm. Yeah, where home is, right? Yeah, yeah, home, definitely. Yeah. So now, yeah, in terms of uh, if if I were to put you on the spot right now, right, and say that mm-hmm. if you are I you have unlimited budget, right, and uh, you can put up a production, you can write music for it, or you can. You can do whatever you want. You can collaborate with whoever you want. What is this production going to look like? I always have, like, this idea of kind of staging, like, this... I guess, like, a show is more, like, multidisciplinary. So not just, like, composition, but also involving, like... So I'm, I'm also, like, uh, quite interested in art. So I, I like to go to mm. museums to, like, look at, you know, contemporary art. So I don't know, maybe it would be a cool thing to kind of... Um, have a production where I can you know involve like not only like music but also like artists and like um so like like not just I mean not just myself but so like other like visual artists dancers or whatever and you know kind of create like this whole production mm. yeah yeah are you interested in like things like uh, performance arts yeah, does definitely. that kind of thing appeal to you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know how do you feel like because you know for for music usually, uh, our performance arts uh, as compared to this real performance artist, their works can run for like hours, right? They can mm-hmm. be like standing at one spot or doing a particular action, uh, or sometimes it can be also gone just like that. It's a very quick performance. So, um, do you think like there's a possibility for music to scale up to to that sort of level? 
whereby it's like you know so so kind of like uh, extended and um, with with such a such a, a strong concept behind it. Yeah, I mean, I think there are existing like art installations, right? Uh, I mean, not mm. I mean art installations that also deal with sound. So mm. which I I mean I've I think there are a lot of uh, instances where like you know you have a speaker in the museum and they're just playing sound like throughout you know that kind of thing so i think yeah. i think definitely is possible and it definitely warrants like a different like sort of thinking i mean a different sort of like uh, listening perspective from the audience as well just because for a lot of times for music like time is such a important part right because mm. we we are always like oh uh devoting like a certain amount of time to like actually listen intently but i mean if let's say the piece is now like a few hours long then you can the audience can just like uh you know step in and listen for a while and then leave so then the whole i guess construction of the the piece of music or you know Mm. the whole installation then has to change yeah so which Mm. is i i find really interesting yeah for sure one one of the uh, my quartet mates, uh, Michelina, you might know her. Uh, so uh, she introduced me to a book, uh, an autobiography of uh, Marina Abramovich. So obviously a super well-known performance artist. So uh, she documented some of her, her own works in the book, which is like, you know, some of these works takes like, like eight hours or like three yeah. hours just sitting across somebody, you know. So I just thought to myself, you know, if anyone sits in a museum, or I sit in a museum and I just play like long tone until I, I completely break. So how long would that be? Maybe maybe for me, it's only 30 seconds. Then like, that's it. I mean, take breaths in between. La, until you run out of chops, right? <laughs> like how far I can push yeah. it and that kind of stuff. Yeah, but yeah. Yeah, but it's also, wow. it's, it's also cool because the, like the example you brought up, I mean, she's more kind of uh in the, I guess, 1950s, 1960s. And she belongs to like, mm. you know, a different kind of, generation of artists where yeah they were really like um kind of questioning like the whole concept of like like performance and music i mean i think she belongs to the the era where like, i think a lot of like uh yeah i would say maybe maybe it's about maybe it's around like 1980s i don't know i have to check mm. yeah, yeah but a lot of performers i mean performance artists at that point they were just kind of like um exp- I guess kind of exploring like the boundaries of art. So like how far can you push like art to be like if, you know, because I know some of her pieces are quite like, um, you know, disturbing mm, in a way. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah, so it's like, definitely. it's like, oh, um, can this be like still considered art, you know? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So some very interesting questions. Well, uh, it's almost time for us to wrap this up. So uh, thank you so much for coming onto the show, Jia Yi. Uh, it's been lovely yeah, of course. speaking to you. Thank you so much for inviting me as well. So I, I hope this is uh, has been a pleasant experience for you, that it hasn't been uh, too difficult or uh, too weird or too strange or offensive in any way. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, all the best to your uh, doctoral application. I wish you get into wherever... Uh, institution that you wants to go uh, that you want to go to yeah and thank you I'm sure we'll be yeah i'm sure we'll be hearing good news from you yeah and for all of you who are listening thank you for staying with us throughout this episode and most importantly thank you for your attention it is very much appreciated 
And with that, we will sign off on this episode of You Play or What. You have been listening to You Play or What, hosted by Vincent Tan. If you enjoyed this episode, please hit the subscribe button so that you'll be notified when a new episode is posted. Rate and review the podcast and share it with your friends if you feel so inclined. The theme music for the podcast is entitled Midnight Affairs and is composed by Algirdas Matonis and recorded by Vincent Tan. Thank you so much for listening to You Play or What? Until next time. Thank you.